Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Later on in the show, the author of The Greatest Ballpark Ever, Bob McGee, will be joining us to talk about his Brooklyn roots, as well as the book. But joining me first, he lives in Westchester. He is a Dodger fan and only memory, and uh, he joins us today, Billy, Billy London. How are you doing, Billy? Okay, how are you? I'm fantastic, Billy, and, and, um, but I want to get right into it. Tell me the best story you have about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay, I grew up in Brooklyn. I left when I was 10 years old, but when I was seven, my dad took me to my first night game. And I, that was the year that Jackie Robinson broke in. And w- looking at him, that particular night, the Brooklyn Dodgers were wearing silk, uh, white silk satin uniforms, which were glaringly white. And Jackie's uh, uh, skin was very, very dark. And I noticed the contrast. I don't think I ever saw that before. I couldn't care less. And I just loved Jackie Robinson from the time I first heard about him a few months ago and that he was going to play on the Dodgers. And I watched him play the game. The Dodgers won that game. And then afterwards, my dad and I were walking towards the car in the parking lot, lot right be on Bedford Avenue, right behind Wright Field. And uh, it was a little bit, maybe 20 minutes after the game. And all of a sudden, Jackie was about... 10 feet from me. And my dad went up to him and he asked him, he said, Mr. Robinson, could you just say hello for a second to my son, Billy? And he came over, he shook my hand. I didn't wash my hand for a month. What? A, that's one of the first <laughs> memories I have. And uh, I live for the Dodgers, absolutely live for the Dodgers. And until they they moved, I just really had a tough time once they moved rooting for them. And once you moved, uh, it it kind of drove you away from, once they moved, it kind of drove you away from baseball, am I right? Exactly. I really, um, I'm a Mets fan, but it really doesn't turn me on. I fell madly in love at the age of 18 with the New York football giants and the New York Rangers. And uh, that was like a substitute for having my heart pulled out of me in 1957 when they moved to California. You know, I really appreciate from the New York Football Giants the fact that their name officially is still the New York Football Giants because obviously there were other teams back in the day uh, like the New York Football Yankees and the Brooklyn Football Dodgers, but the New York Football Giants are are the only one to survive having been named after a, a baseball team, and I appreciate them keeping that around. Right, but I also remember as a kid uh, those series between the, the New York Giant baseball team and the Brooklyn Dodgers that would usually start on a Friday night and go through Sunday. And I thought the whole borough was like watching that game. It was unbelievable New York baseball. And then the reward at the end was to face the indomitable New York Yankees. Um, mm-hmm. um, I remember a few things about the Dodgers specifically. Specifically, I would say Doogie, Duke Snyder and Jackie were my two favorite players. And I was at a game, I think I might have been 11, 12 years old. I had moved from Brooklyn at the age of 10. And the Dodgers won the game. And I was sitting in the center field bleachers. And by the way, the distance from home plate was 393 at one end. And um, Duke just backhanded the ball up into uh, the bleachers. I caught it. I started walking away with the ball. I was absolutely thrilled. And some guy, must have been 6'4", 6'5", just took it out of my hand. But... um, 
last night I was trying to think of a few things about Ebbets Field and about things that, you know, were striking moments for me. And I remember the longest, I would venture to say it was the longest home run ever hit in Ebbets Field. And it was in the World Series, and it was by Mickey Mantle. And he was facing a guy by the name of Russ Meyer, who uh, was a screwball artist from uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he hit one into the upper deck in center field. I never saw that before. And huh. other well, it makes sense that it would be a Mickey Mantle shot that once ever seen. Yeah, exactly. I also remember the arm that Carl Ferrillo had. And once he... Um, he caught a ball off of the uh, scoreboard in right field, and he lost control of the ball. He threw it, tried to throw it at third base, and it wound up in the second deck behind third base at Ebbets Field. Um, those are a few memories. I have quite a bit more. I moved to Long well, Island. And, yeah. so from where did you move uh, uh, to Long Island from? I, li- I lived in uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn, until I was 10, and then I moved to Rockville Center, New York. And I think the most important thing about my move was I didn't have to play baseball on the sidewalk anymore. <laughs> it was uh, it was grass in Long Island, and where I moved, there was a great little league organization, and um, I played a lot of baseball when I was a kid. But the most important thing was never missing a Dodger game. I remember not every game was televised. You used to go to the beach in Long Beach and listen on this black Admiral radio to the Dodgers playing either an away game or a home game. And I remember Vince Scully. I remember Connie Desmond. Um, those were the two voices of the, uh, uh, of the Dodgers. And I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, and Vince Scully, I said hello to him. And he invited me into the booth, and he showed me where he worked. He couldn't have been nicer. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so, so you moved from Borough Park, and it seemed like when you moved in 1950, a lot of people were were uh, migrating out to Long Island from Brooklyn specifically. Absolutely, um, I would say, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, had migrated to uh, to Long Island to get away from the city. Although I have such great memories about Brooklyn, but it was all the central central part of that was the Brooklyn Dodgers. And um, I remember uh, occasionally I would walk into, when I worked uh, in the city, I would uh, notice Rachel Robinson, and I would go over to her on at least two two occasions, and I would introduce myself, and we'd talk. We'd talk for about 10 or 15 minutes, one of the most charming, lovely people you could meet. Just so, so delightful. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember visiting Roy Campanella when he had the accident, that terrible accident. I remember going to see him at Rusk Institute. I was mm. maybe 15, I don't know, 16 years old. and I, I love Campy. He was probably my second favorite player. I thought he was incredible. Hey, um, tell us some of your favorite Roy Campanella stories. Um... I just I remember him hitting a home run in, in the World Series... I think it was against Whitey Ford, and um, I, I don't really have great stories about Campy because of the way, tragically, he wound up in that uh, being par- paralyzed in that car accident. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I have a uh, very um, uh, something that sticks out in my mind. There was a, a relief pitcher on the Dodgers um, by the name of Jim Hughes. He was a, called the Fireman. 
And he was very good for about one or two years. And after the game, we would get on the field, and I'd walk. I was walking next to him as he was walking to the dugout. And he said to me, and I asked him for an autograph. And he said, uh, go shave your blank uh, kid oh, and walked away. That and was the said, only negative thing. He was only good for two years, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, at the most. I, I, I love Clem Levine's curveball. I, I, and I couldn't believe when the most hated opposing player was Sal Magley, who used to pitch uh, yeah. against the Dodgers, and really, the barber was fantastic. And I couldn't believe he was traded to the Dodgers in 56. And he was the opposing pitcher in Don Larson's uh, perfect game. It was a one nothing game. Um, but I couldn't believe he wore Dodger blue. He was always a giant to me. Of course. Uh, but I'm sure you got right behind him like he'd been a Dodger his entire career. Right. And I remember 1950, not getting into the pennant, and Cal Abrams forgot to slide into home plate to tie the game up at the bottom of the ninth. And then, of course, 1951 was probably the most, then the most horrific uh, event of my life when uh, Ralph Banker uh, threw that ball to Thompson. And, and where were you uh, when he threw that ball? I, I just got home from school, and I wa- watched the last two innings, and I remember my mother ironing, and then after the home run, she she hugged me because I didn't cry, but I, I felt like my it was pretty tough. It was really a yeah. tough uh, game. I could see, still see Jackie Robinson walking towards center field and, you know, going back. But, uh, that famous photo of him watching uh, Bobby Thompson touch every base. Yeah, it's it was a horror show. It, it really was. But 1955, eventually. March. Th- oh no! Yes. Yeah, I was about to uh, ask. Yeah, eventually the Dodgers won the World Series, and you got to you got to march. To this day, I can't root for the Yankees. I mean, I can't even watch the Yankees because of 1947, 49, 52, and 53. I mean, four four out of those six years, uh, Dodgers lost in the World Series. To the Yankees, and then finally, they had a left-hander who knew how to throw a changeup, Johnny Padres, and they won that game. And we marched, my two best friends and I marched in the parade. We were all 15 years old, and uh, we had a banner called, uh, well, on the banner it said Brooklyn Dodgers World Champions. And I remember it was quite a crowd there. and uh, There was no problem us marching in the parade, and it was just, it was spectacular. Uh, what a thrill after all those years. I mean, I was only 15 then, but it seemed like an eternity because we never won uh, until that year. And uh, it was just fantastic. Well, I also, re- yeah. No, Billy, I, I just wanted to give our audience uh, an update. Right now, uh, Bob has not been able to call yet, and I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure if he's going to be able to call. He might have gotten calling to work. Uh, so, Billy, if, if you can keep on uh, joining me for the uh, remainder of the half hour. If Bob isn't able to call, I'd love to keep talking about Dodgers with you. Okay. I keep saying to some of my nephews and uh, the younger people in my family who do like baseball, I mean, we're all basically Giant fans and and, and Ranger fans. And uh, the reason for that was in 57 they moved. And as I said, it was like having my uh, heart pulled out of my body. And my Best friend's father uh, in 58 
was getting a divorce and had moved from Rockville Center, and he lived in a hotel in the city, and we used to meet him Sunday morning for breakfast. And then he he had season tickets to the Giants. So I remember on the 44-yard line in the mezzanine in Yankee Stadium, and it was like a whole new world uh, opened up for me. And my friend Steve would, would say, let's go to the Ranger game tonight. We said some fights, and I didn't know anything about hockey. Well, to this day, um, I just love the Giants and the Rangers. Absolutely. Uh, in a way, like when I was a kid, the way I loved the Dodgers. But... Um, I, I still remember those weekends, the Dodger Giants series, three games at the Polo Grounds or at Ebbets Field and Magley's pitching. And I also, I, I love Carl Erskine because I thought that he had then the best curve in baseball. It was an overhand curveball that like dropped off the table. And I distinctively remember him in the, um, I guess it was the 50 three World Series, he pitched the game against the Yankees and he set the record for strikeouts in a World Series game. He had 14 strikeouts and he struck out Mantle and Dara four times each. And the Dodgers won the game. I think Campanella hit a home run. It was a great, great game. And I loved Erskine. I, 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 thought he, I mean, he was a little guy, but he threw fairly hard. Um, I remember Don Newcomb starting 200 for doubleheader. He won the first game, and he pitched like three innings into the second game. And he wow. was also a bet. He was a fantastic hitter, Newcomb. I think one year he had eight or nine home runs, and he used to pinch hit. And uh, uh, he, he was a pretty good pitcher. Uh, now, big guy. Billy, uh, Bob has been able to call, um, and I'm going to okay. bring him on here uh, to join us uh, while you're still on the line. Good. Hey, good no Bob McGee, how you doing? I'm um, I'm great. How are you, Sam? Hi, Bill. Bob. Me, audibly, audibly, Hi, Bob. Billy. How you doing, Bob? Good. Now uh, we uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the greatest ballpark ever in a little bit. And Billy, I was wondering if you could end us with your favorite uh, your favorite story about Duke Snyder, one of your favorite ball players. I think my favorite story really was when uh, I was a kid in center field, right behind the 393 sign, watching the game. I said it before, and uh, the Dodgers won the game. He caught the final out, and he threw the ball underhand up into the area where I was seated. And I caught the ball, and I was absolutely thrilled. Well, I walked 10 feet, and some guy who's about six three, six four, just pulled it out of my hands. But that, together with it, people used to say the dude couldn't hit a lefty. And for a while, he really couldn't. But I remember him hitting four home runs in the World Series. I think two or three were hit off Whitey Ford. I loved the dude. And as everybody did, Billy, I, I thank you very, very much for joining us. And we'll certainly have you on to, to uh, talk some more about, about your time. My pleasure. Uh, your time out there. All right. Thank you very One much. One of my favorite subjects. Goodbye, oh, guys. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Well, Bob, that's a good segue into um, into Brooklyn, and so let's talk about your roots in the former city. Well, you know, when uh, Bill was mentioning Duke, uh, it, one of the things that uh, was really a part of my formative years was uh, uh, growing up in Bay Ridge at 97th Street, Third Avenue. Uh, the Duke lived in the neighborhood. He lived down the block on Marina Avenue. Uh, and Pee Wee Reese actually lived on my block on 97th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenue on Barwell Terrace. And 
Briskin lived uh, three blocks away on 94th Street on Lafayette Walk. So the Dodgers were part of the fabric of, uh, of, of the neighborhood in Bay Ridge. But that was something that it, you really didn't feel the palpable sense of loss until, uh, you know, I was about four or five years old at the time, so most of my heroes were cartoon heroes. But two or three years afterwards, for me, uh, was when it really became, uh, you know, baseball became real to me in terms of uh, its impact, what it meant to Brooklyn, what Brooklyn's history was with the game. I mean, if you go back a, a hundred years from 1957 when the Dodgers left, there were, there were 75 amateur teams in Brooklyn and only 25 over in Manhattan. So, in a sense, baseball grew up in Brooklyn. It was part of the social fabric. The idea that O'Malley would uh, take the Dodgers away from Brooklyn was just unthinkable. And it's, it's uh, I think, poignant that um, basketball has kind of become uh, become the sport of Brooklyn now, and um, it kind of, the way I see it is, is that the uh, blacktops, the sand, the sandlot gateway to blacktops, and and it's fitting that uh, unfortunately uh, baseball was ripped out of Brooklyn, but it makes sense that basketball would be the first professional sport back. I think. Well, uh, it, it's it's certainly great to see a team again that has Brooklyn across its chest uh, playing. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Obviously, at a major league level, so that's that's quite significant. Uh, I think it's a great thing for the borough. Uh, it's also very ironic that uh, it happens to be at uh, Atlantic. Hey, uh, Bob, you're breaking up a little bit. Um, how's that, Sam? Any better? That's a little better, yeah. Okay. Uh, that uh, it happens to be at Atlantic and Flatbush. Uh, uh, the same spot that O'Malley wanted. That's uh, uh, very ironic. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, if, if you look at the success of uh, the Nets this past year, I think everyone would have liked to, to have gone a little bit deeper into the season, but there was no question that there was a tremendous resonance of uh, Brooklyn pride that was demonstrated mm-hmm. both from older Brooklynites as well as uh, uh, younger folks who had no connection with the Dodgers whatsoever. It's, it's certainly... Uh, you know, I'm a Knicks fan, but I was happy to see that for the borough. And I could never, even with my affinity for Brooklyn, I could never see myself switching, unfortunately. But uh, even though uh, certain elements of the Knicks certainly get on my nerves. But we're not here to talk about basketball. We're here to talk about baseball and Brooklyn. And there was this story uh, you told at the beginning of your book. Uh, I think it's close to the beginning of your book of a drive you once took to the site of Ebbets Field. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh sure. It was. It actually was back in 1972, and it was shortly after reading Roger Kahn's *Boys of Summer*. And uh, I, at the time, was going to school at uh, Brooklyn College, uh, which is further down Bedford Avenue. And actually, the college is just a block or two away from uh, where where Gil Hodges lived and where Joan Hodges still lives. Um, and I had never, you know, made that extra trip up Bedford Avenue, and it was a, a cold December night, and uh, uh, I hopped on my motorcycle and went up Bedford Avenue, and finally I got uh, to Sullivan Place and Montgomery Street, and I just drove around the block several times and just tried to imagine uh, 
the field as it was and uh, tried to put that that space into context in terms of there being uh, a ballpark there that had all these great wonderful events and uh, you know it was a it was a quiet cold night but it was just so moving to be in that spot in that time imagining what had been there. I, I would have loved to have seen a game there. <laughs> oh yeah, I was. Um, I lived on Eastern Parkway a few years ago, and one day I uh, took off from work and I walked down that way and I stood right in the middle where the playground is now. Up, up. You have to walk up the stairs from the parking lot. And besides, obviously, the the, the irony, uh, very famous irony that there's a sign that says no ball playing there, uh, it, it was still very surreal to be standing there and, and kind of have an idea that I was, you know, uh, I, I guess close to third base uh, in left field, something, something probably along those lines of where I was standing at the playground. You know, I think it happens often enough at that apartment complex that the people who live there actually get used to it. I was there right. with, uh, uh, actually with Ron Schweiger, the, uh, uh, you know, the borough historian, uh, not too long ago, and we were joined by uh, Evan Drellick, who was writing for MLB.com at the time, who now is covering the Red Sox for the Springfield paper. And uh, we were standing there in, in that area, just and, and Ron was talking about, you know, Third base would have been right here, and if I was uh, Duke Snyder and we walked out to the parking lot, you know, I'd be uh, making a catch right here and all of that. And um, uh, there are a number of folks who are who are living there who are just walking right by, and you can tell that um, they just they see that uh, often enough that they they hardly pay any extra attention to it. But it would have mm-hmm. been nice if uh, there was some part of Ebbets Field that tangibly could have been left or some of the architecture from the shell of Ebbets Field could have been incorporated into what ultimately was built on the site. I think I that would have that. been yeah, I think that would have been a much more um uh appropriate uh acknowledgement of Brooklyn's history than just tearing the whole place down. Especially well, since the exterior was a magnificent colonnade. Yeah, it uh, really I, was a great I actually, I actually had a dream once, and it was an apartment building, but it had the facade. And, it, you know, thinking about the era that it, it that Ebbets Field, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, became decrepit at the time, it, it was all about the new. It was all about washing away the old. And it's un- very, very unfortunate because nowadays that apartment building would literally be Ebbets Field. You know what I mean? That's how it works. That's how renovations work now. That's how people, that, that, that's the mindset we're currently in. And, and unfortunately, that's, you know, we get to this mindset for one because Evans Field and, and Station are, are torn down. I think that, uh, I think that you're right. I think between Evans Field and um, uh, a significant building, obviously, of course, in the early part of the 60s, Pennsylvania Station, of course, uh, a travesty that that was torn down to uh, to make way for the new garden and and the office building above it. Uh, just such a magnificent building that that wouldn't happen today. Um, these are these are uh, unfortunate lessons when you think about 
the history there that's lost that should have been incorporated into uh, uh, into the fabric of the city for future generations. But uh, we go forward from where we are, and it's it's mm-hmm. great that we're sitting here, you know, these many years later, uh, talking about Ebbets Field and what it meant to Brooklyn and. Uh, uh, what a great point of arrival it was for so many people at that time who came to that place to enjoy nothing more than just the pleasure of watching a baseball game. And this is the way we keep it alive. This is this is how it's done, and this is what I want to do with the television show. And, sure. you know, your book is, is actually a, a big uh, creative influence uh, because I basically begin the, the movie the way you begin the book, uh, although without the San Francisco pizza parlor. But why don't we talk about um, how you decided to to uh, get into doing a whole book about the Dodgers and what the experience of writing that was? Well, I had been uh, writing about baseball for, for some time before that. I, I used to write an annual uh, baseball letter that uh, it sort of just began initially as uh, something that I would – send out to friends every spring, and it started to mushroom and started to get uh, many more readers, and people were looking forward to it, and they were uh, handing it on to other people and reprinting it and all of all of that. And uh, one year I decided, you know what, I'm just going to redirect uh, these efforts, because for me there had always been a gap in the baseball literature about Ebbets Field. It was... Uh, there were some descriptions of it, but then, you know, there were other parts of its history that weren't really, uh, to my uh, to my taste at least, described adequately. Uh, the ballpark was expanded in 1931 when it was fully enclosed on the left field side. Obviously, there were, uh, you know, there were a number of seasons where football was played there, and uh, two, there had been uh, these other great stories, uh, you know, about the Abe Stark sign and no one ever hit it when Ferrillo was out there. Well, when had it been hit the first time and who who did hit it and did anyone hit it with any consistency? And uh, uh, lo and behold, in the course of doing the research on the book, I found out that before the Abe Stark sign was put below the scoreboard in 1931 when the ballpark was enclosed on the left field side, uh, there had been a larger Abe Stark sign that was out in the outfield that went from the bottom of the wall up to the top of the wall, and many more players used to hit the sign at that time. In fact, one of the letters I got was from uh, the... Uh, he was then elderly, but it was the son of a tailor who worked for Abe Stark who said in the 1920s, his father on some days altered uh, more suits for players than uh, he actually did for uh, for paying customers. There were enough instances where players hit the sign. But then after 31, it became very infrequent. And uh, uh, the one player who did was uh, hit it with some regularity was Woody English, who was a right-handed slice hitter who joined the Dodgers in, in 37, he hit it three times that season. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, I was talking with the old New York Times sports writer, Leonard Coppett, about it, and uh, Leonard said to me, well, did he get the suits? 
And I said, well, I, I assume he did. And he looked at me, pointed his finger at me, said, don't assume. So I uh, I looked up Woody English, who was uh, uh, still with us at that time, uh, and called him up at his home in Ohio. And when I asked him that question, he laughed. He said, you know, at the end of the season, I went down to Abe Starks, and you, you had to have your... Uh, the ball hitting the sign verified by the official scorer. And uh, uh, he said they had three sheets of paper there. The, you know, the salesman said, uh, went to this box in the back and said, yeah, Woody, he said, you have three suits coming. And as Woody English told it, and he showed me these three pretty cheap-looking things, and I said to him, listen, just give me one good suit. And that's what the guy did. He took him in the back, uh, he laughed, showed him some good suits, and that's what Woody English got for the three times that he uh, hit the sign in 1937. One good suit. You know, I mean, sometimes you got to make decisions, and, it, you know, that's the decision he made. <laughs> well, I'm sure that was a good one. But uh, What are some, uh, some of the more surprising things you found in your research? Uh, there were, you know, for one thing, one of the things that I that I so much enjoyed about working on this book was that folks have such such vivid memories of Ebbets Field and the an older generation of uh, that older generation of Americans that I was getting letters from back in 1990s. You know, folks who'd grown up in the 20s and 30s, uh, they could really write exceptionally well, and their memories were uh, were very vivid. Um, one of the things that they talked about over and over was just how close you were to the field and what an intense experience it was to be in that ballpark. There was uh, this, you know, the, the attention was directed totally at the game. Uh, there was... Uh, you know, there weren't the distractions that you so often see at the ballpark today uh, where people were, you know, just off doing other things or listening to music and half in, half out. There was an intense focus on what was happening on the field. And Tom Knight, the uh, Brooklyn baseball historian, uh, as he mentioned it, he said, you know, when, when I first went to a game in the 1930s, it was before... They even broadcast the game on, uh, you know, before Red Barber and before the radio broadcast. He said, when you went home to your block, there would be a bunch of people who would who would crowd around you. They would want to know exactly what each player did on the field, how they moved out there. So you essentially became the oracle if you happened to be there around exactly, you know, who performed well and how they performed and how every player played on the field. So it was a really special experience. And obviously what Red Barber did was he he even popularized the game more, especially uh you know, with with women because the, the games would be on in the house all the time. And um it, it just made the whole baseball experience synonymous with Brooklyn. And uh, it, in so many ways, uh, Ebbets Field uh, became Brooklyn 
and Brooklyn also became Ebbets Field. Hmm. Well, uh, you got a chance to explore somewhat that element once more uh, for the first Brooklyn Cyclones game ever. You want, and let's end with that. Tell us about the experience of seeing baseball in Brooklyn once more. Yeah, that was a very, very special night. Um, you know, at Coney Island, um, uh, June uh, 2001, there was a there was a parade down Surf Avenue. Had a bunch of little league teams, uh, but there were a lot of people there that evening who uh, who were thinking about the Dodgers or who had been a part of that great Brooklyn Dodger legacy, there to witness the return of baseball to Brooklyn. Walter O'Malley was dead. Uh, Peter O'Malley had had sold the Dodgers. And here we had, if only a minor league team, uh, nevertheless, a baseball team back in Brooklyn, playing in a Brooklyn ballpark. And it was just a a fabulous night, a very, very emotional night. And as... um, uh, you know, as the night wound down, the uh, the Cyclones were uh, they were losing to the uh, Mahoning Valley team, and uh, uh, in the bottom of the ninth, with two outs, this this ball just uh, off the bat of uh, Edgar Rodriguez dubbed Erod by the Mets uh, by the by the Cyclones media staff. This ball rises in the night like this rope line drive against a nice stiff wind into left field and clears the fence at the point when the night is all but resignedly lost and the place just erupts. And then an inning later, uh, the the, uh, Cyclones had the bases loaded and and Michael Jacobs, who would later descend to the the major leagues for uh, with the Mets, uh, he had to hit a sacrifice fly at the bottom of the tenth inning to bring the winning run home for for Brooklyn. And in that single moment, uh, fireworks. There had to be about 15 cameras on the field. Uh, you know, obviously a celebration at home plate. This great little ballpark that fit all of 7,000 people just erupting in this great, wonderful sense that baseball was back in Brooklyn. A very special night indeed. I I really like that it's one of the first uh, experiences of professional baseball that college kids and and even high school kids are now getting. Uh, I like that element of of it. I mean, sure, it would be nice to have like a, maybe even a triple triple A team, but I appreciate that that it's the kind of crowd that you know prepares these kids for what a major league crowd is like because that's what it's like in Brooklyn. Well, you know, the the other thing is too is that the um, uh, the experience is uh, the same sort of close knit experience that you used to have in many of the older ballparks, where the teams were actually regularly accessible to the fans, which mm. they're not today in the same way. I mean, you're too far removed from the field if uh, unless you're you know, you have a, a multi-hundred dollar seat. Um, the kids can't get access to, to the players near the dugout at all before the games. They're sort of cordoned off from getting down there and all of that. 
and uh, the seats that are further up are also further back, whereas in Ebbets Field, you know, you could be sitting up in the grandstand, uh, and there were 17 or 18 rows in the grandstand, but those stands were close to the field. And uh, one of the observations Carl Erskine made was uh, it was such a difficult park to pitch in because it was easy for a hitter to sort of hit a foul ball out of play. And in a number of other places, uh, you know, those balls, that you had a little extra foul territory, you might get an extra out here or there, which you never get in Epps Field because everything was just, uh, you know, it was you were so close to the field no matter where you were sitting. And one of the things that uh, I, I love to observe about Epps Field, too, when I'm, I'm talking about it is the the foul line actually, for the last 10 or 15 feet in left field going up to the foul pole, was actually painted on the rail of the fence of the first row of the box seats for the for the fans who were sitting, you know, along the third baseline on the left field line. So you could literally be in your seat, and if you had your hand on the rail, your hand was actually in fair territory. That I did that's not how know. Close you, and uh, yeah, I'm sure how, I'm sure I read it in in your book. But my my God, <laughs> yeah, I, it's just uh, it it sort of made even more resonant the uh, uh, the, the text Rickard remark about well the fans sitting along the line in left field uh, please remove their clothes. <laughs> Thankfully, no one uh, took him quite literally about that. Although I'm sure there's some eyewitness testimony somewhere out there who claims to have seen it. <laughs> Bob, thank you very, very much for joining us, and I I'm certainly would like to have you on again, and we'll talk some more Brooklyn and, and Dodgers baseball. Uh, thanks, Sam. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And that's our show, everybody. Join us on Friday when the aforementioned Ron Schweiger, the Brooklyn the uh, Brooklyn Borough historian, excuse me, uh, will be joining us once more to talk a general uh, talk about Brooklyn. That's our show, everybody. Thank you very much. Take care.